Oh, it's good to be here this morning. Oh my goodness, sorry. I love singing. I love the worship and music and song and having my family here, at least half of them. My granddaughter asked, Grandpa, do you get nervous when you get in front of people? No, not really. Not anymore. (laughs) I'm more nervous, I guess, that they're here. (laughs) The means of what that means for me as a grandpa, as a dad, and what we're celebrating today. I'm more worried about that. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, i got to (laughs) pray. Father, thank you um, for the resurrection. Thank you for the life that you've given us, the family you've brought us to, the family that you've desired and called us to be a part of um, with Jesus and through him uh, for the joy of our earthly families and the blessing they are the glimpses of what that means in our life and our spiritual life as well, and uh, the joy of children and their just honesty and beauty and the innocence that they share and come to know about you. So thank you for that. God, I just need to get through this today. Father, I pray that your word is clear that I can make it as clear as possible, that it's heard and that it's responded to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Don't know where that came from. It is good to be here. This Easter we are endeavoring to spend a few weeks of what it means in this understanding of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't hear too much of that anymore. But we'll endeavor to try to share some of that, not exhaustively, but for the next few weeks. And this morning, it's about the resurrected king. That's why we're here. There are two historical facts for Christianity of life in Christ, and they are foundational. Without them, this is meaningless, hopeless. One is the cross, and one is the empty tomb. And Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, "If if in Christ we have hope in this life alone, We are to be people most pitied. The New Testament alone mentions this idea of the resurrection of Jesus at least a hundred times throughout the Gospels and the epistles that this history began after Jesus' ascension and the disciples were told to wait, go into Jerusalem, wait for the Spirit to descend on you and they waited and they waited And you get that from the book of Acts. Today's message continues that story, that history that has been preached that first Pentecost day of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He is in fact risen. Now we celebrate, we celebrate a lot of things in culture, which is just wonderful to do. We are, it's just a joy to celebrate good things. We celebrate Christmas We celebrate all sorts of things. And for the most part, people accept or come to know the fact of Christmas and even Easter. We like the idea of those things. But for most, it ultimately doesn't mean very much. Maybe it's just another day off. Maybe it's just a long weekend. But there is no impact, in other words, in a life. No consequence for understanding of 
what that actually means. It's just another social construct that we've created so we can celebrate. And sadly, the result of that is Jesus gets tossed into a bucket with the likes of Santa, the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and so on in a culture. And you hold to those cultural traditions. So in doing so, the theology of that becomes man-centered, which is a dangerous place for you and I to be. It's a man-centeredness instead of a God-centered theology. It's man deciding and deeming himself Lord of his own life. And as much as we strive, as much as we go to pursue life, we still buy into the lie that was held out to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. And when we get there and try, we come to an understanding, if you're honest, that you are way out of your league. But to make that admission that there is another, that there is someone else, other than you brings with it the recognition and the recognition of your error in your life. Jesus puts this this way, and I'm always fascinated by the things that he says because we kind of gloss over them, I think, in a lot of ways. And he says some pretty, if not interesting, in some cases harsh things, such as this, John 3, and Jacob read this part of this. Light has come into the world, meaning referring to himself, The people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Man in his aspiration to be like God, in part because we were created in his image, we reject the very one who can bring us back to him. That's what John is getting and referring to as he's recording Jesus' words. You see this played out this weekend and why we celebrate. Friday we see that man's only true option to his man-centered theology, to the truth that would come is to say no. The power given to us and afforded to us by the Creator being used to destroy instead of to give honor, instead of to build up, instead of to worship. But what man says no to and rejects on Friday today This day, God says yes and accepts by raising Jesus from the dead, by his resurrection, sealing this declaration that we talked about in Mark, if you've been with us through the gospel of Mark, this is my beloved son. He goes on to say, hear him. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. So the question becomes again, it's a good question to ask honestly, so what? So what about the resurrection? What does this day that we're here celebrating have to do with me? Why should I care about a man who was crucified? There were hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of men crucified on Roman crosses back then. What's really going on in the life of this Jewish rabbi that is still influencing us some 2,000 years later? And like we've been pursuing in the Gospel of Mark, it is this claim that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of the living God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark begins. He is laying out his argument that Jesus is the Son of the living God. So in short, this Jesus 
This God, truly God, truly man, King of kings and Lord of lords over all of heaven, ruler of heaven, ruler of earth, everything under the earth, things that you've seen, things and so many things that we haven't even discovered yet. He is Lord because of the cross and because of the resurrection. And so what do we mean by that specifically? It's this, that Jesus was and is who he claims to be in Scripture. One with the Father, the incarnate, the very representation of the invisible God, the one who was in the beginning with God, born supernaturally, bypassing, therefore, the sin of Adam that you and I all are affected with in humanity, therefore able to live this perfect life, holy, in every understanding of, of that purity in the sense of our mind. He was nailed to a cross, a Roman tool, died as a substitute for sinners. The payment was his own blood, his own death. The due payment, the righteous payment, the right and good payment for sin. And the cross is where you look to for the means of God's salvation and grace, the declaration in the Son that he is both judge and justifier to those who believe in him. That's the great exchange. That's the gospel. It's this understanding of knowing who you are in and of yourself, the sin that so easily entangles me, the wretchedness of who I am to the very depth and core of my heart, how awful, how dark, and how I love the darkness, and yet he still redeems. To love in such a way to redeem How does he do that? By demonstrating just that, his ultimate, unfathomable, unending love. Where is love demonstrated, by the way? Where do you experience love? Well, I'm hoping you're thinking, well, the person I'm sitting next to maybe, the relationships that you have, right? Where it gets expressed. You can't just say, I love, in my 30-some-odd seven years, maybe, (laughs) of marriage, that's something my incredibly awesome, wonderful wife reminds me of. Just don't tell me. you got to show me. You can tell me all day long, but it's got to show up, right? It has to show up in relationship. How does God the Son make it show up? This morning, I want to bring four relationships in the resurrection of Christ. And if you are here this morning as a Christian, for you to comprehend these These are paramount to your understanding about Christianity, how Christ has affected you, the life you are now living here now with unwavering confidence and courage and boldness in the resurrection itself. And if not, my encouragement to you is to come to the knowledge of that salvation like Thomas. Thomas, who was right there, who lived it, who saw it, all of it, Walked three years with it and still at the end, if I can't touch his hands, if I can't touch his side, I don't believe. And what does Jesus graciously do? (laughs) Let him do just that. And Thomas' response is the only reasonable response that could be given. My Lord and my God. So four relationships of the resurrected king to claim and make him Lord of your life. The first one is his relationship to God the Father. This is what the resurrection substantiates, that there is, in fact, a connection, that there is this 
eternal relationship. Let me begin in John 17. This is Jesus' prayer. He's been dialoguing with his disciples for at least the last three chapters. And he gets to this point. And this is really, truly, if you want to make a note in your Bible, if you're okay with that, I have lots of them. This is truly the Lord's prayer. And he begins this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed you sent me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as you and I are one. The first understanding and recognition of the relationship is that Jesus desire to glorify the Father, the relationship that they have. Jesus, God the Son, submitting himself to the Godhead plan, the plan that was established before anything was created, the culmination of the eternal plan. That's what this is all leading up to. Everything is leading up to this very moment in time. There is perfect unity. There is perfect harmony. This was the plan from eternity past. This is not plan B. This isn't, oh, what do we do? We've got to come up with something else. This was the plan before there, any, any word was spoken, before let there be light was spoken. This was the plan that God had to demonstrate his great love. 1 Peter 1.20 For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Who gave, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In John 17, there, verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory that he once what? It's past since I had this. It's glorify me in that relationship I once had. See, Jesus willingly, if you will, condescended himself leaving this perfect relationship. I mean, when you read the descriptions of, of these little vignettes we get about what heaven is like, eye has not heard or seen, ear has not heard. What is, it's just indescribable. So when you go to Revelations, what does John do? It's like this. He uses the word like a lot. He's trying to get us to understand as great as the things of this world, it is so far beyond your imagination. And he left that. He willingly came to earth to endure everything you and I experience in this life, but yet to the most humbling degree possible. He had no home, no place to call his own. 
Instead of using the power that he had for himself that we so often do, he used it for everyone else. We've been seeing that in the first three chapters of Mark. He is going around healing and doing all these amazing miracles to benefit people, to expose them to the kingdom of God, what its power is like, to help the sick, to heal, to serve. He taught clearly about the kingdom of God in which they were confused at, yet he was mocked. He was hated, he was cursed, he was beaten, he was spit upon, and ultimately he was crucified. He talks about it this way, and you see this in Scripture, but there's this cup of wrath. Again, it's just for our mind to have an understanding about this filling up, and it was given to him to drink. And even though he prayed, God, if there's another way, let this cup pass, I don't want it, but he willingly took it for you and for me. See, the resurrection means glory in this relationship, and he's making this connection with the Father because the Father only glorifies the one he approves. And so in the resurrection, there is proof, if you will, that he is approved because he wouldn't have been able to go to heaven otherwise. You can't be perfect and holy and just and stand in the presence of God on your own. Moses wanted to do that. That was his question. If there's anything you could ask God, what does Moses ask? I just want to see your face. Isaiah 6, the same thing. I just want to see you. Forget all this earthly stuff. I just want to see and know you. And what does he do? He puts him in this rock, puts his hands. You get to see my backside as I pass. And if that wasn't enough, the glory that comes on his face as he's coming down the mountain, he has to veil himself because of the people. They couldn't look at him. The power in the purity that God has, the power in this relationship, the resurrection, establishes the relationship that he has with God the Father. The second relationship, or rather the second part of this is the fulfillment of the word. And God can't be a liar. He is pure. His word is pure. Psalms, we talked about that last week. It is purified seven times over, meaning it's holy. So what does Jesus do? He fulfills everything. Think about all the prophecies that had to be filled. Everything, he had to come. He had to be resurrected to fulfill all of those. First John 5, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be what? A liar. That's a dangerous place to be as well. Why is he a liar? Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. There is a testimony, and it's found in the Word of God. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he said, on the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't come to abolish us. Every aspect of everything you read in the Old Testament fits into who Christ is. All of it's right there. He came to fulfill it, to express the promises and the fulfillment of himself, to verify, in other words, if you will, the word that was spoken so long ago. The Old Testament is just littered with these. If you just... just a casual look at the Old Testament. You see these throughout all the Old Testament. The first one you'll find in Genesis 3, 15, right? The curse that comes out. That you'll bruise his, he's going to crush your head. And this is this culmination. David in Psalm 16 reminds us that you won't let your Holy One see corruption. Those are the words spoken by God through David. He had to come. He had to be resurrected. My um, grandson, they're here with us for spring break, and so we went for a nice little walk yesterday. 
ended up being about eight miles. <laughs> He's like, what, nine, eight, something? He did good. He wants to go out west in the mountains with Grandpa. <laughs> you see all kinds of things on a walk, and, we, and all kinds of critters and all kinds of wonderful things, but you see some hard things too, which is good for young eyes to see, right? And so there were a handful of dead deer along the way, carcasses. And what do you see? One of them was completely exposed, just nothing but bones, just perfectly laid out from probably last fall, uncovered. He'd never seen anything like that before. Can I touch it? <laughs> yeah, your mom's not here. Go ahead and touch it. <laughs> She's here now. <laughs> we washed. We washed our hands. But it's that. Jesus had to resurrect because that's what we understand that you and I will get to that place in life at some point. The decay that happens, that's what the promise was. He will not see decay. He had to be resurrected. He had to fulfill the word. He had to establish the word that way. The resurrection restores their former relationship. When you read John 17, this is, this is his means of reunion. This is where he's going back to the Father, that relationship we once had, he says. The resurrection glorifies the Lord. It fulfills his word and it restores the relationship. He says, I am coming to you. You back up about three chapters in John 14 when the disciples, what are they doing? Jesus says to them, I am going to the Father. And if you loved me, you would rejoice I'm going. But what were they doing? Jesus, who's going to be next to you? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest, right? I want to be, I want to be known. I want to be somebody. And there are all this infighting and this disunity. The very thing he's praying, that doesn't happen in chapter 17. If you would understand and know you'd rejoice because I'm going away. I'm going to the Father. And they didn't want him to go. They were centering their theology on themselves. He goes on to say in that section this odd little comment that in some way confuses us, I think. The Father... He wants to go back to the Father, in other words, and he says this because the Father is greater than I am. And please don't misunderstand that. That's not his less deity. He is still truly God, truly man, but it is in location and not in person. He's on earth still. God is glorified in heaven, and every, all that meant that he had before creation. It's not that Jesus is a lesser God of some kind or he is somehow less in any way. I've heard that argument before. He's referring to his location and where he had. He is still in this humble state on earth. And yet he's going back to restore his relationship in complete unity the way it was before the foundation of the world because of the resurrection. The second relationship is this. It's with God the Holy Spirit. If Jesus isn't resurrected, the Holy Spirit doesn't come, he says, John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go. If I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him. Jesus refers to the third person of the Godhead in such a way as the helper, the comforter. You're not going to be alone. I will never leave you or forsake you. That was his promise to his disciples. He says this in John 15, But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, this is why he's coming. This is why he is present in the world. He will bear witness about me. 
that's what this is coming down to, the Holy Spirit. What happens if that doesn't happen? There's no witnessing of the life of Christ. There is no witnessing of what He is and what He's done. Verse 27, he says, You will bear witness because you have been with me from the very beginning. They were called not just to follow, not just to be disciples, but to bear witness of the life of Jesus Christ in this point in time in history. Not some myth, not some legend, but a real time frame in history. The resurrection of Christ allows the Spirit to come and comfort, to bear witness. And one more thing, to convict. That's the other thing the Holy Spirit's doing. We talked about this last week, John 8, or 16, 8. What is the Holy Spirit's work? What is He doing to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Of sin, the Spirit convicts the unbelieving heart. This is the, this is the Holy Spirit's first stop. It's to convict your own heart. To come to terms with your own sin. To recognize that it's not anybody else. There's no pointing fingers. It's just this way is all there is. There's no one else to blame. You don't blame your circumstances. You don't blame any of those things in this life. It's the recognition of being poor in spirit as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. The second thing is because of righteousness, meaning the fact that God is pure, that God is holy, that He is righteous. And that only such can be in the presence of God. The resurrection establishes that. That Jesus is now in the presence of God because He is pure, holy, just, and righteous. He is truly God and truly man. And that just confirms that without the resurrection, there is no hope. And third, of judgment. Because now, because of the resurrection, the world stands judged. Satan has now been judged. And if he has been judged by the resurrection, and if he will not escape the judgment that is coming, what, may I ask, in the world do you think is going to happen to you and I if we don't believe? See, the testimony of the Holy Spirit is found in the Word of God. So what does an unbelieving world have to do? In every generation, what has to happen? What is their only means in which they can operate? It's to defame and discredit the word, the testimony. That's what they have to do. The word of God is always being called into question, always. It's unreliable. There's this new thing, there's that new thing. In fact, I don't know if you subscribe to the New York Times, but it happened last Sunday in the New York Times. Three pages. It was interesting. I'll save you, you know, I won't read all that because it's getting late. <laughs> But here's the claim by this professor. The claim is that there was once this Deuteronomy um, ancient manuscript discovered in the 1830s or 1883 or something like that, rather. But after examination, then it was declared a forgery. But all of a sudden today, it's not a forgery. It's actually real. The reason why the point that he's making is because if that's true, then it is too early for Moses. Moses couldn't have written it. Well, what does that do to the Word of God? It's just all discredits. That's all it's intended to do. What's interesting to me is that manuscript they're referring to has been missing for over 100 years, apparently. 
How do you make a judgment that you can't touch a manuscript and feel a manuscript or even know where it's at and then say, oh, by the way, it's real <laughs> after it was already declared a forgery? This happens over and over again. It'll happen again at Easter, which it has, and watch again, pay attention just before Christmas. The same thing happens all the two times of year, the same thing. Just to discredit. But you've got to remember something else. It goes way farther back than 1883. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Did God really say that? Really? Did he really say that? That's the de defaming and decrediting of the word of God right from the beginning. So if Jesus isn't resurrected, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and there's no witness. And if that happened, doesn't happen. What else doesn't happen? There is no day of Pentecost where Peter preaches the gospel. Where 3,000 that day came to know the Lord there is no church, in other words. There is no start of this new covenant, this grace that's flowing, this means of salvation that we experience. It's just all a waste of time, in other words. This is futile. It makes us feel good, maybe. I'm a moral person, or, or whatever that standard is, but it becomes meaningless if there is no spirit that comes. If the resurrection doesn't come, doesn't happen, the word's not validated that is the battle, by the way, in our life. Those are the discussions, the gospel conversations that we like to have. Is, is really, it does, it does come down to this. How reliable do you believe this to be? If you believe this to be the Word of God and all of that means and its inherency and all of that, you are the minority in Christian religion these days, truly. Third relationship. The third relationship because of the resurrection is with you, believers, if that's what you are. What does the resurrection mean for you? We finally get to you. It means you can be declared righteous. You can be declared holy. You can be declared like Christ. Romans 4, Paul talks about God's promise to Abraham. He's making this connection all the way back to the promise. He says this, but the word, it was counted to him. The him is Abraham. It wasn't written for his sake alone. Notice it was written, by the way. But for our sake also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There is no resurrection. You are still in your sin. There is no justification. There is no justifying you. There is no mechanism for God to say, okay, I just love you all. You guys are good. Because a just God doesn't do that. A holy God cannot do that. There has to be payment for sin. There has to be some kind of exchange taking place. I referred a week or two ago, C.S. Lewis has gone in the dock. I would encourage you to read that. Because he goes through some of that. God declaring the judgment in his seat of judgment and then coming off the judgment seat, taking your place in the dock to take his own punishment. It's that great exchange. See, when you believe in the testimony of Jesus Christ by the Spirit through the living Word of God, you are now declared by Him righteous, perfect, perfect in relationship to God the Father through the Son, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. How perfect do you feel this morning? See, that's where it gets kind of off the rail, doesn't it? I, because my, I know who I am, right? 
I know what goes on inside. I know how sinfully wretched and decrepit I can be and what I am truly. And I don't deserve any of this, but yet he still loves, he still pours this out. It's that recognition. And when my feelings get in the way, I question, does God still love me? Am I still valuable? That's why you can't let your feelings lead. Don't put them in the driver's seat. They'll catch up. But do you believe the promise that God declares you righteous? Oh, yeah, but Pastor Joe, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, I, I don't. I may not. But I know what Scripture says about you because he says the same thing about me. You love the darkness. You love everything about it. You want it before you know Christ. And yet you are justified. Like Moses, when he sees the burning bush and is in first encounter with God, and he approaches that, and God stops him and says, Hey, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. Do you realize you are holy ground? And do you understand you are holy in Christ? Irrespective of your battle with your sinful nature. And do you realize, please, I'm sorry, I'm a little rabbit trail, but when you have those thoughts and those feelings especially, do you understand that's a recognition that there's a battle going on inside you? And that's a good thing to have? <laughs> it's the recognition that the Holy Spirit's working in you because there's a fight to begin with. Not that you're perfect. The gospel conversations of, oh, you Christians think you're, you're just so much better than everybody else. You think you're holy. You think all these things, you're good, you're righteous, you, you have this morality. You can just set all that aside. I know and recognize who I am and, and what I don't deserve. That stuff will catch up. It's called discipleship. But I know who I am and I know what I deserve. And it's not what he's given. And yet he does. What else does a resurrection do for you? It declares that you are righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, for your sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You hear the exchange? What else does it do? It delivers you from sin and the power that it has over you. You can live in, live in freedom now. You now have in Christ the Holy Spirit. You have the power to overcome. He overcame the world. You now have the power to overcome whatever that sin is that keeps inflicting you. Whether you have to keep repenting, whether you have to keep buttressing it, even though it shows up in your life day after day, week after week, you have the capacity now to stand firm, to fight. When you've done everything else, Scripture says just stand. Resist the devil. That's a promise. What's the, prom What's the, the benefit of that promise? When you resist that, Scripture says he's going to flee from you. Just resist. Yes, it's hard, but we resist. That's why we fellowship. That's why we're in fellowship. Number three, it gives you life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Romans 6, Paul says it this way. You were dead in sin, but alive to Christ. And then when you get to chapter 7, it's, that's how I affectionately remember with students, the do-do chapter. <laughs> What I want to do, I don't do it. It's that. And, and what does he do when he gets to that, to chapter 8? Thanks be to God. There is no condemnation. There therefore is no condemnation in Christ. What else does the resurrection do for you as a believer? It prepares a place for you, John 14. If I go, I go to prepare a place for you. Do you have hope in that? 
Do you, do you understand there is hope in that? The power to live. Paul says, whatever I once had, in all my grandness and my education, he's an extremely smart man, probably a very wealthy man, and all those things that I had, I count now as loss for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ and his resurrection. James says it this way, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Short version is it just makes you an enemy of God. Intercession. This is beautiful. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is able to save you completely. There's no parts of your life that aren't covered by him and those who draw near to him. And he says this, he always lives to make intercession for you. That's his ministry now. He is in heaven, intercession, making intercession for you, this mediation process. You never outgrow the gospel. You never outgrow its need. Because there is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. But again, what happens? All those feelings and thoughts start to creep in, don't they? Satan has been conquered, Revelation says. How does Satan conquer it? How have you overcome? How do you do it here and now? You remember, you are conquered. He, or Satan is conquered by the blood of the Lamb, the cross, in other words, and the word of the testimony, the word of the resurrection, what we're celebrating. Revelation 12, 11. What does the re- resurrection mean for you? He's coming back. Your citizenship in Christ is not here, it is in heaven. We are in the world, but not of it. We do life here in all its complexity, in all of its detail of all the things in our life, which is an encouragement for us not to paint a broad brush for each other. This is always right, that's always wrong. But to understand the principles of God's Word and how they get applied. He's coming back. And we patiently await, Scripture says, the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will transform this lowly body into his glorious body by the power that enables him even to be subject to all things. It's the power of the resurrection. What's the fourth relationship, the last one? The fourth relationship is the unbeliever. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never named the name of Christ. Maybe you just think it's, yeah, it's Santa to me, it's the tooth fairy, it's all those things. It's okay. But please understand this. You have a relationship with him as well. What does the resurrection mean for you? What does the resurrected king's relationship with you? Second Peter says this, chapter 2. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This thing just rolls right along. I've been hearing this my whole life. My dad, my grandpa, my great-grandpa, everybody's been saying this whole time, he's coming back and he's not coming back yet. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And what do we know about the word of God? It's true. By the resurrection, we know it's true. The promises have been fulfilled. See, the prince of this world would like you to believe Jesus is lumped in with Santa and all the other made-up traditions the human mind comes up with. But as we've seen in the book of Mark in our study so far, 
you don't get that option. That is not an option for you. You don't get to neatly pack him away in the recesses of your mind to think he is this and just like Santa. That's a man-centered theology. Jesus substantiates his claim of who he is in the resurrection. Which one of you, if you'd go that route to say, yeah, it's like this, this, and this, how can you substantiate that claim that Jesus is just like Santa? He's just like this. How do you substantiate? How do you refute the eyewitnesses? How do you refute the the witness of the word itself? Which one of you can unlock the mysteries of the universe and know those things? Which one of you can say, I am God? Amen. (laughs) See, that right belongs to only one, and it's Jesus Christ, Acts 17, 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's the stamp. See, your unbelief doesn't create God or not create him or make him cease to exist. And my belief does the same. Just because I believe doesn't make it so, in other words. He is outside of both of us. 2 Thessalonians 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, this is what that picture looks like, in a flaming flyer, inflicting vengeance on all those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. What is that? Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. How He's holding all this together by the power of His Word. When He comes on that day, He will be glorified in His saints and, be, and to be marveled among all those who have believed because of the testimony to you as uh, for those of you that have believed. See, Jesus is the risen Savior. He is the risen Judge. He is Lord of all heaven and earth. And He's the only one that can offer you the grace and mercy that you so desperately need, the forgiveness that you require to save you from the cup that you will drink one day without it. What must you do to be saved? Probably the best question you could ever ask. (laughs) It was asked to Peter so long ago, repent. And be baptized because of the remission of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, if you're asking yourself that question, okay, what does it mean to be saved? Then again, that is a good good indicator the Holy Spirit is prompting your heart. Don't close the door. Don't resist. Scripture says don't quench the Spirit. Don't put it out. He's prompting. He's doing His work to bring you to salvation. He's doing the work in your life to recognize who you are, truly, how God sees you. See, by faith, or faith believes who Jesus is. Faith confesses that he is the son of the living God. Faith causes repentance of sin in your life. It's the recognition and understanding that without that, I'm just going to keep doing this, and I would, and I will, but apart from Christ, I can't do anything. I can't save myself. He's giving you something new. 
And on the outside, when you're looking in, oh, it's just a bunch of rules, it's just a bunch of regulations, a bunch of do's and don'ts that I can't do, and I just keep banging my head up against the wall. That is because you don't have a new heart. That is because you haven't understood or or come to, to terms of salvation in Jesus Christ. He gives you a new one. He gives you. You don't come to him fixed. You don't come to him any means except humbly understanding who you are in Christ, desperate to be saved. That's how you come. You don't fix yourself up and then, okay, maybe they'll like me now. That's not how this works. You just come. That's it. There is no sin that outstretches God's grace. None. Well, except the one we talked about last week. <laughs> but if that's you, you are nowhere close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He is calling you. Faith is expressed then in baptism. Submit to his lordship and come to the saving knowledge that Paul talks about, that Jesus is alive to be able to say like Thomas, my Lord and my God, to live obediently to him. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of the resurrection, the power that it brings, the work that's been done so long for these so many years, millennium. Father, my prayer this morning is that no one would leave here today or in the hearing of my voice without submitting to you, without wrestling with the resurrection and what it means to our life, the the recognition that you have risen from the dead, as outlandish as that may seem to understand, to comprehend, and that's really the point, it can't be done without your help. There is no means in which we come on our, on our own, in our own terms, but solely on your calling. Help us to recognize that you are alive this very day in a glorified body that we will once at one day have, and that you offer today the day of salvation anyone who would receive it. God, I pray for humble hearts. Humble hearts to come to know you. Humble hearts to ask questions maybe. Father, thank you for what you've done to save us. Thank you for the testimony of the resurrection. Thank you for the testimony of your word through the spirit that gives us eternal life because you live. God, I pray you help us proclaim the glorious gospel of who you are. And Father, today, let this be a great day of remembrance and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.